John chapter 4, 1 to 42, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you did not labor, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for what we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Sometimes ethnic diversity is enchanting. Uh, We all are happy with our favorite restaurant. Maybe it's a Vietnamese restaurant or a Mexican restaurant or a Peruvian restaurant or a Thai restaurant. And we're thankful for ethnic diversity. Sometimes ethnic differences are uh, amusing. We find customs of other cultures to be funny because they're so different from our own. Sometimes they're downright irritating. And we begin to say to ourselves, why can't they do it right? Which means, why don't they do it like we do it? Sometimes ethnic differences rise to the level of being actually dangerous and deadly. And many of the the wars in recent decades have been fought precisely over different ethnicities occupying or wanting to occupy the same space. We can think of Iraq, we can think of Rwanda, we can think of the Balkans, we can think of Yemen, we can think of Israel and the Palestinians, and we can think of Sri Lanka, we can think of India, we can think of Indonesia, and the conflicts in these countries have been because of ethnic conflicts, ethnic diversity and rivalry. And it seems to exist, even if it doesn't break out into warfare, it seems to exist just about wherever different ethnicities occupy the same space. And that's what we have here. Last week, we saw a potential rivalry that was interpersonal. Do you remember? John's disciples were in rivalry with the Pharisees, and they were also trying to set up a rivalry with Jesus' disciples. And John would have none of it. And now we see Jesus' response to that, that potential interpersonal rivalry between John the Baptist and himself. And we'll see how he deals with that. But the bigger rivalry here, which is the backstory of, of this story today, is the rivalry, the ethnic rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. Now we find this begins with Jesus leaving Judea. And once again, Galilee in the north, and Jesus has been there. That's where he did the turn the water into wine in Cana of Galilee. And then Jerusalem is in the south where Judea is. In the middle of those two provinces, we have Samaria. And it says that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So so Jesus was hearing, and then the qualification, Jesus wasn't doing the baptism in verse 2, only his disciples. But when he heard that this potential rivalry between himself and John was, was becoming known publicly, he left. And he got out of Judea, and he went north. And he went north toward Galilee. But it says here in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, that's a a word that we've come uh, come across a number of times. He had to. Usually it's translated, he must. He must pass through Samaria. Now, that was the most direct route. That was the normal route. It took about three days of walking to get through Samaria. Samaria. But some people took a longer route uh, around the east side of the Jordan so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. So it wasn't strictly a geographical necessity that he go through Samaria. And we've already seen how this word in chapter 3 is used 
for a divine necessity. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That was, uh, that's that same word. Uh, he said that the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth. Uh, the same word. And uh, G- John had said, He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. This is all the same word. And so when He says that He must go through Samaria, it looks like this is some sort of a divine necessity that He be in Samaria. Now, Samaria, we need to understand something about the history of Samaria. Jacob, Jacob, uh, the father of the nation of Israel, so we have a- the patriarchs Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then we have the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob had bought a piece of property in this area, Genesis 33:19. He had promised in Genesis 48:22 to give a mountainous slope from this area to one of his sons, to Joseph, and then Jacob himself had been buried there. Uh, Joshua 24:32. There is no record in the Bible of him digging a well. But this well is remarkable because there is an unbroken history as far back as we can go that this is Jacob's well and it is still an operating well today and it still has water today because it may be fed by underground springs. And uh, this, uh, this well was where Jesus arrived, and he arrived at the sixth hour, which was noon. Uh, it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, Jesus wearied from the journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now that sets up our story of today, but let's understand a little bit more about the Samaritans, because a Samaritan is about to show up. The Samaritans descended from the ten tribes, so we had the twelve tribes, we had ten of them in the north and two of them in the south, In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they wiped out the northern empire, the ten tribes that were called Israel, the southern tribes were called Judah, and they sent some of those into exile and then they imported pagan tribes because they were trying to intermingle the bloodlines to try to break down ethnic identity and religious identity. And so the Samaritans descended from the mixture of those ten tribes with the pagan tribes who were introduced into the area. And at first, they adopted all the gods of those various tribes, or several of them anyway, but little by little, they became monotheistic again. That is to say, they worshipped one god only, and that is the true god. So these were, these were those who had recovered the worship of the true god. But... But they recognized, in terms of the Old Testament scriptures, they recognized only the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And, and so their knowledge of God was limited. So anything that came after those first five books, they did not regard that as the word of God. And they interpreted, and this is significant for this, uh, this interaction here, they interpreted those first five books to indicate that the proper place that God had designated to be worshipped was called Mount Gerizim, which was in their territory. Because God's designation of Jerusalem came after those first five books, so they didn't recognize it. They thought that was an innovation of the Jews, and they did not recognize that. They considered themselves to be the conservatives who were holding on to the most ancient traditions. So, what did they do? They built a temple on Mount Gerizim about 400 uh, B.C. And uh, the Jews, then in 128 B.C., knocked it down. 
and enslaved some of the Samaritans. And you can imagine how, how that went over with the Samaritans. So there was some recognition of common ancestry, but there was also a great deal of rivalry and conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's the background. And at the hour when Jesus was there, a woman arrives. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this is, this is a bit strange that she would arrive, one, by herself, and two, at noon. It wasn't strange that she was drawing water. That was women's work. Even as heavy as it was, that was women's work to draw water. That wasn't strange. But normally, the women would go out together for safety, and they would go out when? Early or late, when it wasn't so blazing hot. So this was suspicious that she was by herself, that she came by herself, and it seemed to indicate that she was not welcome among the women folk of her town, which is why she had to do this by herself. And her arrival set up an awkward situation, which which was taboo in basically all of the cultures of that day, and that was that a man by himself speak with a woman by herself Uh, if they were not married to each other. That was considered to be shameful and scandalous. But that's what was set up here. Now, we met met Nicodemus a couple weeks ago. And Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, a strict Jew, a respected male leader of the Jews. And now we have the exact opposite. We had a respected, pious uh, Jewish man And now we have a probably despised, rejected, maybe immoral, we don't know yet, Samaritan woman. And so we have the the, the polar opposites here in Jesus' two encounters. And once again, even as we saw with with Nicodemus, we will see this all through the Gospel of John, the, the teaching advances on misunderstanding clarification, and final acceptance. Jesus will say something, they don't get it, they misunderstand, and then Jesus clarifies, and then eventually some of them receive. Now that's, that's the back story. Now let's go to the text itself and the story to see how this conversation developed. Jesus apparently was not too concerned about the social norms and the scandal that it could cause, and he spoke to this woman, and he said, give me to drink. Give me something to drink. Now, his disciples had gone away, as it says, and the woman was was quite shocked that he would ask for a drink. And if you look at verse, verse 8, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So, all sorts of, all sorts of barriers there. But then there's in parenthesis, it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Probably the best way to translate that is this. Jews and Samaritans don't use the same utensils. They don't use the same utensils. And he's asking her for a drink, right? So what does he have to drink from? The same bucket, the same utensil that she was using to bring up the water. It wasn't that they didn't have any dealings. Where had the disciples gone? They got into the town to buy food from whom? From Samaritans. So they had some dealings when they had to, but they tried not to use utensils. And so how, how are you going to do that? And then Jesus surprises her and says, if you knew 
with whom you were speaking, you would ask Him, and He would have given you living water. Now we have another very John sort of move here. We have seen throughout the Gospel of John that it, He loves to include ambiguous phrases that could mean one of two things. We saw that with being born again or born from above. Uh, and here this idea of living water. Living water literally was running water. That's how they referred to uh, flowing water that was considered, well, to this day, it's considered to be cleaner and safer than than water that is stagnant. And so uh, it could be just living water. I'll give you running water that will be a better source for you to draw your water. But it also, if we go back to the prophets, we find that living water was water of life. That is to say, water that gives life. How does she interpret it? She interprets it literally. And uh, she says, where are you going to get this? And then she tries to put him in his place. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. It's about 100 feet deep even now. Uh, He says, where do you get that living water? And then she puts him in his place, tries to. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she doesn't understand, interprets it literally, puts him in his place, and then Jesus clarifies. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But I give a kind of water that will quench thirst forever. And obviously here he's speaking figuratively, and she's not getting that figurative language. Is I'm offering you something that will really satisfy you, that will really, really quench the, what you're really thirsty for. And she still doesn't get it. He, he says, even though he spells it out, he says in verse uh, in verse 13, 14. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still not getting the the metaphorical, the symbolic reference. And so Jesus takes another tack and he says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, um, he may have done that for a number of reasons. He may have wanted to clarify that he wasn't interested in her, that is to say, in some sort of romantic relationship. So he says, go get your husband. This is, this is a little bit unorthodox here, so let's, let's bring your husband into the situation. Let's be clear about what this conversation is about. But it looks like there was another reason. Because she says, I have no husband. And Jesus uh, recognized that that was formally correct. That was a true answer. She did have no husband. But then he said the whole story was that she had had five husbands and she was living with a man who was not her husband. So he says, yes, you're right. That's true. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Well, if we take this in the context here, he's offering her what? He's offering her satisfaction in life. He's offering her something that will really fill the void of her life, that will really fill her up and really satisfy her forever. And what does he point out to her by saying, go call your husband? He points out that the way she has been living her life has not been satisfying. It has not been working out. Now, we don't know. The the right to divorce was, was on the husband's side. So we don't know why these five husbands divorced her. 
And she may have been completely innocent, but she seems to be covering up this before Jesus, so it looks like there's something shameful on her part as well. And so by saying, go call your husband and exposing the fact that she, she had had five husbands and now she was in a, a relationship that was, that was not proper, he was saying, how is this working out for you? Is this giving you the satisfaction that you're looking for? I'm coming to you and offering you water that gives life and you have been trying to, to quench your thirst in other ways. And it's obviously not working. And she recognizes now that this thirsty Jewish man was more than a thirsty Jewish man. And she recognizes that he's a prophet. Now, some think that she is now trying to throw up a smokescreen. I think she's being sincere and taking advantage of the fact that she has a prophet with her. And she wants to settle the fundamental, if this conversation is going to continue, she needs to settle the fundamental difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. And what's that? Where should we worship? Where should we worship? You all say Jerusalem, we say Mount Gerizim, where should we worship? And um, Jesus answers her, and he affirms a couple of things. He affirms, on the one hand, that the Samaritans really were deficient in their knowledge. He says, we worship what we know, we Jews. You worship what you don't know. You've you've truncated the revelation of God and you don't have the full revelation. And so so your, your knowledge is deficient. And he also affirms that salvation comes from the Jews. It doesn't come from the Samaritans. How do we know it comes from the Jews? Because Jesus came from the Jews. So he's pointing to himself again. Salvation comes from the Jews. But at the same time, he says this. Even though that's the case, he says, this question of, of where God should be worshipped is about to be radically altered. In verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Do you remember I told you to put a sticky note in your head about the hour? Do you remember back in Cana of Galilee where Jesus' mom wanted to, him to do something and he said, woman, what is there between you and me? My Hour has not yet come, and we'll see this all through John. And here he says, kind of ambiguously, the hour is coming, and then he says, and now is. So it's here, but it's not here. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then he says, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know. Salvation's from the Jews. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, once again, there is a great deal of debate about this in spirit and truth. And uh, some think it, it has to do with our own spirit. We worship God spiritually, not simply by going physically to a certain place. And certainly that's true. But it looks like in the light of this context, he's talking about A new change, something that is going to happen, something that is going to be given. So I think the best interpretation is that this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And that when we worship now, we don't worship because there's a physical place to which God is somehow tied. We worship because God has given His Spirit. His Spirit is with us. His Spirit is in us. And we worship in the power of of that Holy Spirit that He's given. More on that in chapters 14, 15, and 16. 
And then he gives the reason. Verse 24. Why, why this question of Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion, why this is, is becoming obsolete. He says, verse 24, God is spirit. He is not corporeal. He is not physical. He is not limited to one mountain or another. He is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him. This is the same. They must. This is the same. Divine necessity. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is a radical change. But it's really realizing what Solomon already realized when he dedicated the temple. He built this magnificent temple and he dedicated it. And then he said, but God, you have made the, the highest heavens in the earth. A temple cannot contain you. You are above all things. And so Solomon, even in his day, was recognizing the inadequacy of a physical place to which God would be restricted. And Jesus is saying the time has come because He has come and soon He would be giving His Spirit. Now the woman may have been wanting to close the conversation, I don't know, but she she said something which I think she thought would be conclusive in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And it sounds sort of like a closing, well, well, uh, Messiah will take care of all this. And then Jesus says something which is really quite surprising. Because we're only in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. He says, I who speak to you am He. This is unparalleled uh, in the Gospel of John at this stage. But why is He doing this? Why is He blurting out, as it were, His identity as the Messiah? Well, He's not in Judea. And he's not in Galilee. We don't find him doing this in Judea and Galilee. We find him being being uh, indirect. We find him giving signs. We find him uh, challenging. But here he simply blurts out when he's not with the Jews that he is the Messiah. And then something happens. And I hate when this happens. I can't tell you how many times I have gotten to the climax of the sermon. And, and, and everybody is, is, is paying attention and, and it, 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 I'm full of the text and, and everybody is, is joined together and then somebody gets up and goes to the bathroom and everybody just follows. Or, or a, a, a fire engine comes by with the siren on and the, the attention is broken and the magic is gone and, and I have to try to recover the attention. And right as he says, I who speak to you am he, the disciples show up. <laughs> And so she scurries off, but it looks like she's coming back because she left her her water pot. And the disciples show up and they recognize that something very strange had just happened. But they don't dare ask him, why are you talking with this woman? And the woman goes off and she goes into town and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, she asks this question in this way. She says, this can't be the Christ, can it? She asks it as if to expect a negative answer, but at the same time, she seems to be hoping for a positive answer because she says, he just told me all that I did, and you need to meet this man. And so they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now we have an interlude. And the interlude is the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. 
And they bring food and they say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have other food. He's already talked about water, hasn't he? Water that satisfies, water that sustains. And now he's going to talk about food that satisfied, food that sustains. I have food about which you do not know, and that's my food. And what is that food, he says? He says, that food, my food, is to do and to accomplish the Father's work. And then he explains what the Father's work is. The Father's work that He has given Him to do is harvesting. Harvesting. And He uses two Proverbs here. One is a proverb, we don't have it recorded anywhere else, but it it, it seems to be a common proverb there. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. So, what's the idea of that? There are four months... Then comes the harvest. What can we do? What should we do now? We can kick up our feet. We can wait. Four months away. We don't have to worry about the harvest yet. That's the proverb. But he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Verse 35, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That usually doesn't happen, does it? Usually the sower finishes his job, then the reaper months later begins his job. But he says the sower and the reaper are working contemporaneously here. Here's the other saying, verse 37, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's discussion about who are those who labored. Was it the prophets of old? Was it John the Baptist? Was it Jesus? himself, but he says, others have labored so that you can enter directly into the harvest time. And then we have the return of the Samaritans. And this is the harvest. And some people think that when he said, lift up your eyes, the fields are white for harvest. That white is strange because crops are not usually white at harvest time, but the Samaritans coming out in their robes might have been white. That's possibility. But it says that many from that town believed in Him. You see, Jesus is saying, the harvest time is now, folks. And the church and Christians have always had a hard time understanding the urgency of that. We have always been more like that proverb saying, oh, we have time, there's four months more, we can delay, we don't have to be so urgent about this. And we can see that in our priorities Our denomination has one of the largest, our denomination is not large, but has one of the largest missionary forces per capita. That is to say, given the size of our denomination and the the missionaries we send out, it's, it's exceedingly large in comparison with most other denominations. And even at that, even at that, we send out 0.2% of our communicant members. Point two. And we have one of the larger forces on the field. Our, our denomination is, is the mission agency, Mission of the World, has a challenge, and it's called the 1% challenge. And the 1% challenge is asking churches to send out just 1% of their members. And if we did that, we would have 3,000 instead of 600 missionaries, full-time missionaries out in the harvest field. How do we spend our money? It's hard to come up with, but somebody has calculated roughly 
and this is talking about worldwide, of $1,000 of Christian income, $1,000, 20 goes to Christian causes, $20 out of 1000 So 2%. Out of that, only $1.40 goes to missions. And out of that, only 1.4 cents go to unreached people groups. So on most Sundays, we pray for unreached people groups, don't we? And worldwide, Christians are giving 1.4 cents out of $1,000 that they make to reach those groups. Jesus says, folks, lift up your eyes. The harvest is not as sometime in the future. The harvest is now. And then the Samaritans come. And Jesus says, see, watch, look what I'm doing. Many Samaritans, it says, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That got him out there to talk to him and meet him. And then the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And he did. He stayed with them, breaking cultural barriers. He stayed with them for two days. And, and many more believed because of His Word. And then they said to the woman, it's no longer because what you said we believe. We have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And we have seen in the Gospel of John that the word world means rebellious humanity. We have seen for ourselves that this one is the Savior of rebellious humanity. The harvest among the Samaritans had already begun. And we find if we go to Acts chapter 8, that after Christ had come and had finished His work and His apostles were going out, that the Samaritans were some of the first ones to come from the nations. Now, along with John, this woman is the most effective witness that we have so far. And in fact, she may even be more effective than John. We don't know how many John was able to bring to Jesus, a couple at least, that we know about. He may have brought many more to Jesus. But but this woman brought her town to Jesus. And, And this woman shows two things. That no one is too sinful... To have eternal life. And no one is too ignorant to be a witness for Christ. What did she know about Jesus when she went and and evangelized her town? What did she know? All she knew was, He just told me everything I've ever done. And she even exaggerated. That's all she knew. And she brought her town to Jesus. Now, if you go back and look at the pious Nicodemus, Jesus didn't seek Nicodemus, but He sought this woman. And that may be what it means that He had to go through Samaria. Why did He have to go through Samaria? He said, because the Father seeks those who would worship Him. He had to go to Samaria to find this woman so that she would become a worshiper in spirit and in truth. So that she would find Uh, the well of living water that would satisfy her soul so that she would believe on Jesus and receive 
eternal life. Her five former husbands didn't want her. But Jesus had to go to Samaria to seek her out and to find her. The women of the town, they didn't want to be seen with her. But Jesus was happy to be seen with this woman. She may be unlikely in the eyes of the world, but I have to say, it's a good thing for us that she's the model and not Nicodemus. You see, if if Nicodemus had been the model for how to have eternal life, we would all throw up our hands in despair. Because I venture to say that none of us are as good and as pious and as righteous and as devoted as Nicodemus. And if he were the model for receiving eternal life, we'd say, oh, I guess it's just for a few of the best of the best. But no, it's for people like this woman. She's the model. She's the model for receiving eternal life. You see, Nicodemus had told, or Jesus had told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need a total makeover. And he couldn't understand that because he was already so good. This woman didn't need to be told that she needed a total makeover. She had made such a mess of her life that she knew she needed a total makeover. And that's how the Gospel comes to us as well. When we need and realize that we need a total makeover that we cannot ourselves bring about, when we look at the ways that we've tried to get satisfaction in life and find that we're always left thirsty, always left hungry, now we're ready to turn to Jesus, the the fountain of water that gives life. And then once we've received of that living water, what are we ready to do? No matter how little or much we might know about Him, to go out and tell people where they too can find the water that gives life. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this woman. Because we see in her a picture of ourselves, we've all tried in different ways to try to suck satisfaction out of temporal things, and we've always come up empty. And Lord, we long for, we want life. We thank You that this woman found life and got life to her, her whole town. Lord, we need life, we need satisfaction, we need eternal life, we need that which satisfies, and we we come to You, our God, through Jesus, not boasting of our goodness, but recognizing our need, and receiving with empty hands that eternal life that Jesus came to bring. And we pray, O oh God, that having received that eternal life, that You would stir us up. Oh God, stir up our church, stir up Your church around the world that we might recognize that the harvest is now, that the fields are white for harvest, and that this is our job and our joy to take words of life to the thirsty nations. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.